And the title of the sermon is Embracing the Power and the Peril of God's Protection. Embracing the Power and the Peril of God's Protection. And I will parse out what I mean by that as we go today. But I want to begin by observing that it is common in our culture to draw a dividing line between analytical thinking and faith. Between critical engagement with the world through science and scientific investigation and submission to the teachings of the prophets and apostles in Christian scripture. We're told that critical thinkers need evidence, whereas people of faith just believe, inexplicably. Now, of course, the implication of those kinds of arguments is that the most intelligent people in our culture, the most educated, the most analytical, the most logical and rational among us, well, those people will never be Christians in the purest sense of the word. I mean, they may be able to buy into the ethics of Jesus or the value of Christian teaching, but miracles, resurrection from the dead, the existence of God or the afterlife, never. Never. It's a sign of a lower intelligence. Less critical thinking, right? Well, near the most recent turn of the century, I have to say that now, because whenever I said turn of the century, I was thinking the 1900s, you know, you know, 18 into 1900s, now we're into the 2000s, so I have to say the most recent turn of the century, a journalist by the name of Lee Strobel, some of you are familiar with him, he attempted to say hogwash to that line of thought. He wrote a series of books investigating the reasonability of believing the claims of the New Testament. The first of the series was called The Case for Christ. The second, The Case for Faith. And the third, The Case for a Creator. And he's continued since then. I I think I recall The Case for Easter not that long ago and some others. Now, if you're a person who would like to believe in the Christian faith, but you feel like to do that would be a way of compromising your intelligence then Lee Strobel is probably someone that you would do well to read. You might not always agree with him, but I think you'd appreciate him. And for our purposes today, I want to call our attention to the introductory chapter to his second book in that series, The Case for Faith. But I want to give you a background. Some of you probably know who Lee Strobel is. Some of you may not. Lee Strobel was, for 14 years, he was a journalist for the Chicago Tribune. And he was an award-winning journalist. He won, uh, according to the reports that I've read, some of the highest awards given to journalists. And he was an avowed atheist for all of his life. However, his wife became a Christian, and he started to notice some changes in her that he couldn't quite explain. And being an analytical, critical sort of a guy, he said, well, I'm going to do some exploration about this Jesus. I'm going to do some research, and I'm going to find out if this thing is just a bunch of hooey or if there's any rational foundation for believing in him. And so, uh, if you're interested in his journey, that's chronicled in his first book, The Case for Christ. But suffice it to say that that journey led him to lay down his atheism and accept Jesus as his Lord and Savior, and he chronicled that journey in that first book. Well, the second book that he wrote was The Case for Faith. And he began that book by interviewing a man by the name of Charles Templeton. Now, that's an old name. Some here might remember who that was. Many probably don't. Charles Templeton was a close companion and preaching colleague of Billy Graham when both were young men. They met in 1945. And Templeton eventually founded a church that grew beyond 1,200 members. And Billy Graham once said of him, he's one of the few men I have ever loved in my life. Well, we know what happened to Billy Graham. 
Uh, he went on, or at least most of us do, if you don't, you need to really read up. <laughs> he went on to a career in ministry that's now somewhat legendary. But Templeton did not. Templeton eventually was overcome by doubts. And he eventually embraced agnosticism. The belief that we cannot know whether or not there is a God. He left the ministry and he became a commentator and a novelist. And at the time Strobel had interviewed him, this would have been in the 90s, I believe, his most recent book was entitled, Farewell to God, My Reasons for Rejecting the Christian Faith. So when Strobel asked him how he had gone from an evangelistic preacher of great renown, working with Billy Graham, to an agnostic, Templeton pointed him to a picture that he had seen in Life magazine of a woman in northern Africa who was holding her dead baby in her arms after a long drought. That picture led Templeton on a journey to conclude that no intelligent person could believe in the existence of a loving God when all that was necessary to save that child was rain. Here are some poignant excerpts from the interview that Lee Strobel recorded at the beginning of the Case for Faith. He asks Templeton, Would you like to believe? I asked. Of course, he exclaimed. I could if, if I could, I would. I'm 83 years old. I've got Alzheimer's. I'm dying for goodness sake. But I've spent my life thinking about it and I'm not going to change now. Hypothetically, if someone came up to me and said, Look, old boy, the reason you're ill is God's punishment for your refusal to continue on the path your feet were set in. Would that make any difference to me? He answered himself emphatically, No, he declared. No, there cannot be in our world a loving God. His eyes locked with mine. Cannot be. And moving on to the interview after they talk about a number of other things, the issue of Jesus comes up. And Strobel asks him this question. And so how do you assess this Jesus? It seemed like the next logical question, but I wasn't ready for the response it would evoke. Templeton's body language softened. It was as if he suddenly felt relaxed and comfortable in talking about an old and dear friend. His voice, which at times had displayed such a sharp and insistent edge, now took on a melancholy and reflective tone. His guard seemingly down, he spoke in an unhurried pace, almost nostalgically, carefully choosing his words as he talked about Jesus. He was, Templeton began, the greatest human being who has ever lived. He was a moral genius. His ethical sense was unique. He was the intrinsically wisest person that I've ever encountered in my life or in my readings. His commitment was total and led to his own death, much to the detriment of the world. What could one say about him except that this was a form of greatness? I was taken aback, Strobel writes. You sound like you really care about him, I said. Well, yes, he's the most important thing in my life, came his reply. I, 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 he stuttered, searching for the right word. I know it may sound strange, but I have to say, I adore him. I wasn't sure how to respond. You say that with some emotion, I said. Well, yes. Everything good I know, everything decent I know, everything pure I know, I learned from Jesus. 
Yes, yes, and tough. Just look at Jesus. He castigated people. He was angry. People don't think of him that way, but they don't read the Bible. He had a righteous anger. He cared for the oppressed and the exploited. There's no question that he had the highest moral standard, the least duplicity, the greatest compassion of any human being in history. There have been many other wonderful people, but Jesus is Jesus. And so Strobel asks him, so the world would do well to emulate him? Oh my goodness, yes. I've tried and tried as far as I can go to act as I believe he would have acted. That doesn't mean I could read his mind because one of the most fascinating things about him was that he often did the opposite thing you'd expect. Abruptly, Templeton cut short his thoughts. There was a brief pause, almost as if he was uncertain whether he should continue. Uh, but, no, he said slowly. He's the most... He stopped then started again. In my view, he declared, he is the most important human being who has ever existed. That's when Templeton uttered the words I never expected to hear from him. And if I may put it this way, he said as his voice began to crack, I miss him. With that, tears flooded down his eyes. He turned his head and looked downward, raising his left hand to shield his face from me. His shoulders bobbed as he wept. The interview goes on. Templeton does not recommit himself to Jesus. Strobel finished writing the book, dedicated it to Templeton, and sent it to the manuscript to him. And to my knowledge, Templeton died an agnostic. Now, the case for faith is not the greatest defense of Christian faith I've ever read. In fact, it's probably not even in my top ten. I disagree, actually, with some of the supposed solutions in that text. But I love this introductory chapter. At the heart of this emotional introductory interview is an observation that I believe we must have before us as we approach the text of 1 Peter today. Have you noticed that Jesus so often proves more appealing to contemporary people than God? There just has always been something about Jesus. Now, it's significant that the writer of 1 Peter is Peter, the apostle of Jesus. And few, if any, no matter what kind of scholar we're talking about, few, if any, dispute that the individual who wrote this epistle is the same man who spent at least three intensive years at Jesus' side. It's cool, actually, biblical criticism. I know none of you probably get into it too much. Maybe a few do. But it's, it's cool to know that despite the fact that the, that the New Testament has been copied over and over and over again over the course of thousands of years, we have found manuscripts untouched by human hands that go almost back to that first century. I mean, within a few hundred years of it. And the words of Peter are the same in those manuscripts, by and large, as they are in the copies that got passed down thousands and thousands of years. So most scholars are convinced that whatever we have in 1 Peter are the words Peter wrote. That's significant. Because Peter claimed to be an eyewitness of all that the Gospel teaches about Jesus. And the text of 1 Peter was written, whatever we think about it, by Peter. So today, as we come to 1 Peter, we're going to hear the words written by one of Jesus' closest earthly friends. And it was written within 40 years of Jesus' death on the cross. I just told you a story about Billy Graham from 1945. 
That was a lot more than 40 years ago. Peter wrote his text within 40 years of Jesus' death. The title of the sermon today, as I said, is Embracing the Power and the Peril of God's Protection. And all these doubts, right? Templeton raises a lot of questions, mostly about the presence of suffering in the world. But there are other doubts we have too. Doubts that are raised by science. Doubts that are raised by theories of evolution and other things. And they swirl around us. And oftentimes we can be made to feel like if we disagree with Christian tradition or Christian scripture on any one point, if we even have doubts about it, then we might as well not be a Christian. We're really, in fact, an agnostic, at least, if not an atheist. And some of us have accepted that argument, that I either need to swallow everything everybody has ever told me, or I need to walk away. Well, I, wanna, I think Peter takes that kind of an approach off the table. Peter wants us to focus our attention on one event, one single event in the history of the world on which all matters of faith hinge. We believe this one thing occurred and our faith is secure forever. We doubt that this one thing occurred and we might as well walk away. One thing. And it is the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. We're going to talk about that today. But I'm going to begin. And so the power and the peril of God's protection, the power of God's protection is the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. The peril of God's protection is that Jesus had to be resurrected from the dead. And the promise of God's protection is the resurrected Jesus. Those are our three points today, if you're taking notes. Here we go. 1 Peter chapter 1, I'm going to begin reading in verse 3. If you're not there, I invite you to turn with me. I'm reading from the New International Version. And we finally made it through the first two verses after four weeks. You're going to feel like we're going lightning speed today as we go through six verses. Peter writes these words, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. I'm calling this first point of our discussion today the power of God's protection. The power of God's protection. Did you notice that Templeton began his critique of Christianity as so many do? who admire Jesus, by making a distinction between Jesus and God. You notice that? What's interesting to me, it's almost ironic, ironic isn't even the right word, because ironic seems too happy a term. It's sad to me that the only source we have for Jesus is the New Testament. We have no other sources that say anything about his life or what he taught. We have other sources that confirm he lived. But we have no other sources that tell us about the kinds of things he taught, the things he valued, the way he lived his life. We have only one source, the New Testament. And the New Testament does not allow us to separate Jesus from God. But those like Templeton seem that they can access Jesus through the New Testament while dismissing what the New Testament says about him. It's interesting. For Peter, and remember, Peter was a man who walked and lived with Jesus. We may live 2,000 years later, but the man who wrote these words lived the events he's talking about. According to Peter, Jesus is absolutely essential to our understanding of God. The one who Jesus called His Father. 
whoever God is, whatever our experience of Him might be, He is defined forever after by His relationship to Jesus. God is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus has insisted, according to Peter and the other witnesses, that all Jesus did, that all Jesus taught, that all that Jesus was, all of those things were a direct expression of the will of God. For Peter to admire Jesus is to admire God. In his humanity, Jesus was not so much good as he was obedient. He was a living embodiment of the will of God on earth. And it's this God, the God that Jesus claimed to represent in all that He said and all that He did, that Peter writes these words. It's about this God. In His great mercy, He's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. The great Christian hope that the prophets of Israel and the apostles of Jesus are trustworthy and truthful. That hope. I'm going to try and lead you on a way of thinking that I think may be easy for some and may be horribly hard for others. But we have to understand what the resurrection of Jesus did for the apostles. Because Jesus, like every prophet in the history of Israel, had a lot to say. And He did a lot of things. And He claimed to speak on behalf of God. But there was one law that Moses had given to the Israelites. One criterion by which we could decide whether a prophet was true or false. Whether what he said was reliable or fictitious. If that prophet prophesied something, it had to come true 100% of the time. One time a prophet says something that doesn't come true proves them categorically to be a false prophet. Prophets of God are never, never, never wrong. 100% accuracy. And God encouraged the Israelites, if a prophet ever prophesied something and it did not come true, He encouraged them to stone Him. 100% accuracy. Jesus claimed, and the, prophet, and, the, and the apostles testified to it, that He would die and be raised again on the third day. When Jesus rose from the dead, according to Peter, that validated everything He had ever said. Everything He had ever done. Because what He prophesied came true. And then secondly, there was no possible way a human being was going to raise themselves from the dead by an act of their wills. So the very fact that God raised Him from the dead, according to Peter, meant that God agreed with Jesus. Why else would He raise Him if He wasn't confirming that Jesus was telling the truth? Everything that we believe hinges on the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. The great Christian hope that the prophets of Israel and the apostles of Jesus are trustworthy and truthful. The leap of faith that Christians often must take in order to accept that a people living thousands of years ago are more able to communicate God's will to us than we are. The belief that this life is not the end of our story. The great and joyful hope of the new heaven and the new earth. For Peter, these things are not foundationless beliefs built on some myth or story that they found to be valuable. Nor is it something we root in the word of some prophet or apostle on their word of honor. 
The Christian faith is a living hope because it has been rooted, according to Peter, not in myth or legend, but in the historical event of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Even more, Peter insists that he witnessed the risen Lord himself personally. In other words, according to Peter, the trustworthiness of the First Testament, the truthfulness of the apostles of Jesus, the very authority of the Christian gospel and the eventual scriptures. The foundation of all those things is the historical resurrection of Jesus from the dead. If this was an invented story, then it would have been Peter who would have been one of the group who invented it. If it was fiction, they invented the fiction. They were the authors of it. And Peter has insisted to us that this is no story. He insists he is a witness. All of our faith and hope hinges for Peter on the resurrection of Jesus. And if that did not happen, then in the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians, we of all people are most miserable. Our faith does not rise or fall based on the presence of evil or suffering in the world. That's not the criterion by which we've been given by the apostles to decide whether or not there's a God. Our faith does not rise or fall on our personal experience with God, whether we feel He's near to us or far from us. That's not the criterion. Our faith does not rise or fall on the word of scientific inquiry or philosophical speculation. The faith of the Christian church rises and falls on the historicity of Jesus' resurrection from the dead alone. Peter suggests that if Jesus did in fact rise from the dead on the third day, then the questions of God and of faith and of goodness and of hope and of resurrection and of eternity have been answered and asked finally and fundamentally. And it's the inheritance that accompanies that faith, the faith that Jesus rose from the dead, that is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. So long as we remain convinced that Jesus rose from the dead, nothing that happens in this world can tarnish that hope. Because it is rooted not in an idea, not in a concept, not in a religion, not in a philosophical system, not in a linguistic theory, in an event, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. If Jesus has been raised from the dead, then the question of God's goodness has been settled because God entered the world and suffered for us, with us, as us. If Jesus has been raised from the dead, then the question of God's justice has been settled. Because the word God spoke to Adam and Eve, telling them that they would die if they ate of the fruit, has been fulfilled. Humanity has died. But it's not the end of the story, because Jesus has been raised from the dead. If Jesus has been raised from the dead, then the question of the truthfulness of the prophetic tradition of Israel, the Old or First Testament. Sometimes we read the Old Testament and we say, I don't believe that happened. I don't believe there was an Abraham. I don't believe there was a flood. I don't believe that God created Adam and Eve. I think whatever we think, whatever in the world we think, the truthfulness of the prophets hinges on whether or not Jesus rose from the dead. Because Jesus treated them as authoritative. And His life fulfilled their prophecies. If He rose from the dead, then they have been authorized by Jesus. 
everything hinges on whether he rose from the dead. If Jesus has been raised from the dead, then the question of eternal life has been settled because Jesus demonstrates that death is not the end for humanity. Not because He told us so, because He came back. How many times have you heard people say, well, I don't know if there's life after death because nobody's ever come back. Somebody came back! <laughs> he just didn't come back to you, and I know that's all that matters. If Jesus has been raised from the dead, then the question of suffering has been answered because Jesus suffered. And He suffered horribly, which means the will of God's people, the will of God for His people includes suffering. If it didn't, Jesus wouldn't have suffered. But He did. So it belongs here. Everything hinges on Jesus. Peter went on to insist further that it's this faith, faith in the resurrection of Jesus and all the confirmations of Jesus' authority that that event assumes, that event assumes, in which we are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that's ready to be revealed. For Peter, so long as we cling to the faith, to our faith in the apostles' testimony that Jesus has been raised from the dead, nothing we experience can take our faith or our hope from us. Why not? Because God is at work protecting those who keep that faith and shielding them until the day Jesus returns. Our first point was the power of God's protection and it's that Jesus was raised from the dead. Our second is this, the peril of God's protection. The peril of God's protection. And I've already hinted at it. There's a peril to God's protection because Jesus had to be raised from the dead. How do we know that when Peter said that the faithful are shielded? You probably heard that verse proof text. I certainly did growing up. How do we know that when P Peter says that God is shielding His people by His power, how do we know he's talking about faith in Jesus as resurrected from the dead? I mean, couldn't Peter have been saying that God's going to protect His people from pain and suffering, from heartache and loss and disease, and if we just have enough faith, we're not going to have to endure any of those things? I know I've heard that somewhere. Couldn't Peter have been trying to encourage the believers in Asia Minor that he was writing to that God was going to protect them from all the, the ailments and woes of this world? Well, let's see. Let's keep reading. 1 Peter chapter 1, picking up in verse 6. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. What? These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. What? So God's going to protect us. Woo, I was feeling good. He's going to shield us by His great power until the day Jesus comes back. And it, it doesn't include protecting me from persecution? Or suffering? No. It does not. God's shielding does not protect His people from suffering and persecution, according to Peter. And that's not only evidenced in Peter, the experience of the community to whom Peter was writing, because they were suffering, if you remember, for those who were here the first week of the series. Peter is writing to a people who are being persecuted. But the very fact that God doesn't protect His people from these things has been evidenced throughout church history. Either during or not long after the writing of 1 Peter, the church would face persecution by the Roman Emperor Nero. Lots of persecutions, but one of the most infamous is an incident in which Nero had Christians crucified along a road leading into Rome and he set them on fire. 
In the 3rd and 4th centuries AD, a series of Roman rulers issued edicts that required Christians to make sacrifices to pagan Roman gods or face severe punishment or death often in gruesome ways. Many died at the hands of animals and other more horrible things. And even today, many Christians around the world are being persecuted and even murdered because of their faith in Jesus. God's protection, as powerful as it is in preserving the faith of Jesus' followers, does not promise protection against suffering, or violence, or persecution, or poverty, or even illness. Why not? Because Jesus had to rise from the dead. He had to die. And the road He walked was a road of suffering. This is the issue that Templeton raised, isn't it? Doesn't the reality of suffering and evil and the apparent indifference of creation to human life stand before us as evidence that there is no God? Or at least if there is, not a loving one? Yes, yes, it would. If Jesus had not risen from the dead. But if Jesus has risen from the dead, then the Father of Jesus has willed the road of glory to be a road which includes suffering and heartache, and despair. Now the whole road isn't that, of course. The road to glory also includes times and seasons of celebration and feasting. How do I know that? How can I say that with such confidence? Because the life of Jesus included all those things. And because Jesus rose from, rose from the dead, we know that the life He lived, He walked in obedience to God, and His life is the will of God for us. So if it happened in His life, it's part of God's will. It happens in all who follow Him. Are you hearing Peter this morning? The power of God's protection of our faith is rooted in the historicity of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. If Jesus truly rose from the dead, then nothing that happens to us, no amount of doubt, no amount of questioning, could ever justify us turning away from God. Why not? Because, can you say it with me? Jesus rose from the dead! Amen. He couldn't have done that on his own. There was no way, no matter how good he was, that he was coming back from that. God, the God he claimed to represent, had to have done that for him. And if God did raise him from the dead, then that is the greatest confirmation of God's approval of Jesus that the world could ever be given. Are you hearing Peter this morning? But there's still a difficulty, isn't there? I mean, that's all fine and good if we trust Peter. Right? What if Peter was making the whole thing up? What if, what if, what if, he was, what if this was just a hallucination? What if he was wrong? I mean, how critical were they really, right? About a lot of backwards people 2,000 years ago. Maybe they couldn't tell when someone was dead. Maybe Jesus passed out on the cross. Maybe, maybe he, uh, he went into a coma. And they buried him thinking he was dead, but he wasn't. And three days later, he came to in a tomb. And he's like, what happened to me? And somehow he pushed that enormous stone. It wasn't as big as the, the stories, but still, you know, a stone this big is heavy. Has anybody tried to move a stone even this big? Goodness sakes. And so after three days of being in a coma, he just grabbed that thing and he just pushed it out of the way. He folded his bedclothes neatly and he walked away. And wandered in half-heartedly into the disciples' homes and said, I'm back! And they all went, oh my goodness. Is that what happened? I mean, what if he only appeared to die? What if the disciples were wrong? 
then Christianity is a lie. It is a false religion. You should not be here. What? Yeah, that's right. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, if the apostles were writing myth and not experience, if the testimony of the apostles was a misunderstanding or a cleverly concocted deception or a robustly embellished tale, then this whole thing is a sham. If you don't believe them, you should walk away. There's nothing of value here that you couldn't find someplace else. So that's it. We only have Peter's word on this thing? Well, yes, yes, and no. Some of you know what I mean. Our final point this morning is this. The presence of God's promise. The presence of God's promise, and it is the resurrected Jesus. Continue following along with me as I read from 1 Peter 1. I'm picking up now in verse 8. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And even though you do not see Him now, you believe in Him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Those who were here during the first sermon of our series here on First Peter, you may recall that the believers to whom Peter was writing, they were non-Jewish people who lived in a land far from Palestine, far in those days, and still far today. We could probably drive there from Turkey today, but you remember, they were walking, riding maybe uh, donkeys or something like that. So they lived far away from the land of Palestine, which is where Jesus had lived, where He had done His ministry, where He had died, and where He had reportedly risen from the dead. Like us, they had never seen Jesus. They had never met Him. Like us, the only encounter they had with Jesus was through the testimony of the apostles, through the gospel. So how did they know that they could trust these guys? Now, it's one thing, right? I mean, people are pretty easily deceived by people they trust, you know, or even people they don't trust who are charismatic. But this is different because these were Gentiles. These were non-Jewish people. And believe me, do a little bit of research on the history of the Roman Empire. And the Jewish people and the Romans, they did not get along. It's unlikely that a Gentile is going to hear a Jewish person say anything about anything and just believe them. So it's, it's unbelievable, first of all, that these people even accepted it. How did they know that they could trust these witnesses? Why were they willing to suffer all that they were suffering? on the basis of a story that had been told to them. Why? Because the gospel had encountered them. It was more than a story. Did you get Templeton? He wept when he thought of Jesus. And he had no room in his heart for God. But he wept when he thought of Jesus. He could find nothing to disparage in what he had been told about Jesus by the apostles. I wish he could have recognized that that response to Jesus, that was rationally inappropriate. But he had been encountered by Jesus, I believe, and the encounter had been one that he could never shake off. He just couldn't get away from it. Templeton had allowed his experience and his intellect and his evaluation of the world to cause him to turn away from God. But he could not turn away from Jesus. And so many today who want nothing to do with the God of the Bible, they still cannot get away from Jesus. They still think the ethics of Jesus are valuable. 
Somehow, when these believers heard the gospel, they knew it was true. I would suggest that even atheists who, who feel the truthfulness of Jesus' life, they know it's true, but they don't want to have to accept all that comes with it. If only Jesus didn't rise from the dead, I could treat him as a good guy. But good people don't come back. He's something more. Somehow they saw these apostles, they looked into their eyes, and they believed them. I think this is one of the greatest evidences that we can have for the truthfulness of the apostles. It's that the willingness... It's the willingness of so many non-Jewish people in the first century who met them personally. So believed that what they were telling them was true that they were willing to die for it. This, I, I can't even make a good comparison. That won't seem somehow insensitive. But this is somewhat akin to a, a person who's an enemy of ours. It'd be like the Russians in World War II and afterwards. Well, I guess they were kind of our friends in World War II. You know how it goes. But afterwards, certainly not. It's like one of them coming to us and telling us a story about something that happened in Moscow and having Americans just flock to it. How does that happen? Maybe it does. It seems surprising to me that it would. I think that they encountered Jesus. The power of God's protection is the resurrection of Jesus. And the peril of God's protection is the resurrection of Jesus. And the presence of God's promise is the resurrected Jesus. If Jesus has risen from the dead, then all that He has said has been validated by the God He claimed to represent. And Jesus has said, according to the same witnesses who are our only source for Him, that to encounter Him is to have encountered the God of all creation, His Father, Yahweh. Peter has said that at the beginning, but I like John's words. They're a little more expansive. This is from the Gospel of John, chapter 14, beginning in verse 6. Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, Don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I don't speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who's doing His work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. The ultimate work, He rose from the dead. Do you get that? Jesus answered. Lord, Philip says, Lord, show us the Father. And Jesus responds, Don't you know me, Philip? Just words. Until he rose from the dead. Christianity rises or falls not on science or philosophy or psychology or suffering or poverty or hypocrisy or corruption or anything else. The faith of the apostles of Jesus and that of the earliest believers rises and falls on the resurrection of Jesus. If you are today going to doubt, and that doubt you think could lead you from God, this is the point your doubt needs to focus on. 
If you are of those who believe that the apostles were telling the truth, that they did not die for a lie that they invented, but they died for something they believed to be true, and you go further than that and say not only did they believe it to be true, it was true. If you're there, then this is what you're focusing on. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead. The authority of everything else we believe hinges here. May all your gaze and all your faith this morning be rooted in the resurrected Jesus. This is the faith that God shields. If our focus is here, it's what can never be taken away. This is the faith in which we can be eternally secure. And it is this point of faith, if we lose sight of it, that will cause everything else we believe to crumble. Would you stand with me this morning?